Welcome to ICA Podcast 9. The goal of ICA Podcast 9 is to provide insightful information about the industry to members and non-members of Intercoiffure America Canada, the voice for salon owners. Each week we'll bring business, educational and inspirational topics to aid anyone with ties to the beauty industry. We will have a revolving series of hosts pulling from industry leaders as hosts and guests to keep things lively and interesting and make you wonder what's coming next. Now, here's this week's edition of ICA Podcast 9. Welcome to Intercoffure America Canada's podcast. Today we have Frank Gambuso, which I don't think anybody in this industry doesn't know that name. Uh, he's not only a friend personally, but he's a friend of uh, Intercoffure Global as and most importantly, he's a friend to the industry. Uh, Frank, all these years I've known you, you've been so supportive uh, to so many, many people and been a mentor and I know you've been mentored. Um, so just for our audience, uh, let me know a little bit about where you started and, and just your, your career path and uh, some of the things that helped you along the way and some of the things if you could go back and, and redo, just to give a little, um, help to the students and to the people who are just coming into our industry. All right, be glad to, Sheila. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, I was very uh, excited about doing this today. And, you know, it's been a long time I've been in this industry, but I'm every bit as excited today as I was back in 1971, July 9th, I did my very first haircut. Uh, I, I was quite young at the time, but that makes this 50 years this year that I've been doing it. So hopefully I could share 50 years worth of mistakes to the audience and uh, maybe they can <laughs> learn from, from five decades of screwing up. But no, I, I, I started off as a shoeshine boy in a barber shop. I grew up in the inner city of a town called West New York, New Jersey. And there were a lot of taverns and bars. Everything was walkable. And I was going to taverns and bars doing shoeshines and doing quite well. I was, I was very much an entrepreneur at the age of nine uh, it was called uh, entrepreneur by uh, baptism, I guess, because you had no choice. You know, I grew up in a blue collar home. My father supplied extremely well to me and my four brothers and my mom. But there were, if you wanted something extra outside the necessities, you had to find a way to make it happen. So all of us sort of had a little side hustle of some kind. And mine was a shoeshine boy. And uh, so my dad didn't like me being in taverns. So he got with the local barber. His name is Joe Vito Lupo. Uh, obviously, this was a very. Like a <laughs> it could be a movie, <laughs> and the story and the stories I won't tell today are what needs to be in the movie. <laughs> but uh, no, so he got me a, a job shining shoes in a barber shop, and from the minute I walked into the barber shop, I absolutely fell in love with the atmosphere, uh, the conversations, the personalities, the craft itself. And Joe saw me take a uh, liking or he constantly saw me watching what they were doing. And one day he just said, hey, kid, you like what you see, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, why don't you be a barber? I said, oh, my gosh, I would love it. And I was no older than 12 at the time. So that, that's, that's when I started kind of, you know, listening, watching, looking. And he, in between, if a client didn't show up, he was a very, very busy barber stylist. This, is, this was in 1970, and, and it was a men's styling salon. 
And you know, what's interesting is it was important to use the word salon for men back in the seventies to say, hey, this is what's up and, and current and kind of new. And now we're using the word barbershop for men to make it sound like it's trendy and and, in place. So that's kind of how I got into the industry as a a men's barber. And then all of a sudden I became 15, 16, 17. I'm in high school and I figured out if I'm going to spend 45 minutes with a client, I'd rather it be a female than a male. (laughs) So uh, so I I started going to the Vidal soon had an academy in New York City at the time on 57th Street. And I took a week course at the Vidal Sassoon Academy in the summer and just saw things I've never seen in my life with haircutting. I mean, I had a great foundation of men's haircutting, which at the time was women were cutting their hair short. So I needed to have that foundation. I didn't realize how important the barbering piece was. And then when I went to Sassoon, they were carving into necklines and they were doing short box bobs and asymmetrical haircuts and fringes. So all of that uh, technique was still applicable, but in a completely different way. I saw headdresses dress phenomenal. I saw them taking that craft as more of a profession than a trade. And I saw people being very articulate, explaining, breaking down a haircut, how they approached it with technique and how it was very, very scientific. I always kind of saw the artistic side of it, but this sort of made me see the scientific side of it. And I realized that the two are necessary in order to do wonderful hair. So that that was kind of my whole beginnings. And then I went on to work for Vinnie Romano, who in 1976 won the world championship uh, with a beret haircut. It was a very Sassoon type shape haircut with graduation. And he got a ton of notoriety. And he was in North Bergen, New Jersey. The town next to me was West New York, New Jersey. And it was the place. I mean, it was kind of a hippie type salon, but packed. Uh, the stations were very, very inexpensive. There were cinder blocks with a piece of plywood on top of it and, <laughs> and a bunch of plants hanging over your head. And it was cool. It was very cool. Music yeah. was bumping, you know, and it was a unisex salon of all the stylish people in town. So it was kind of this natural progression of, you know, not only working where it was at, but kind of paying attention to where things are going. And I think that's very imperative in our industry that all of us as a group need, if you're going to be a market leader in any town USA, you got to be as focused on where things are going as much as where they are now. And I think we're very much in that uh, state right now as an industry because it, it was changing naturally before COVID and it just accelerated change and there's fragmentation everywhere. And I think we really, I think there's opportunity right now. You know, I think there's a lot of doom and gloom conversation going on. And I listen to a lot of people. And by the end of it, it makes me want to take my scissors and throw them into the Bermuda Triangle and quit. But, but really, there's opportunity to say, okay, what, what can be? What, because people aren't going to quit getting their hair done. That's the beauty of this, right? It's not going to go away. So how do we do it different? How do we pivot? How do we stay nimble? You know, how do we stay fluid and make it happen for the next generation? And I'm one that's here to say that I think good, good, very good things are ahead of us for the beauty business. I totally agree. You know, I see so many hybrid things happening, like, um, you know, working only a few days a week and then maybe doing something offsite, you know, sharing. And, and there's just so many things out there that's happening that 
Uh, it's going to take a, about a year or two to adjust to, but I agree with you 100%. The opportunities ahead of us and the positive changes that's come out of this, um, I call it an, a, global, a global earthquake rather than a pandemic because it really shook things up. And now we're trying to piece it back and we have a few little tremors and, and um, you know, uh, things like that that are giving us a little shake up. But I think it's really good. And I, I think the people coming into the industry are going to have more opportunities than we had. But there are some things I think are going to stay the same. Uh, and it, it only is for the craft. And that's mentorship. I know you teach classes. I know you share all of your business information. I mean, uh, you're so incredible uh, holistically and within this industry. But how do you feel about the actual hands-on mentorship of just, let's just take care cutting. How do you, do you think that people can really learn um, the basics from a video or do you still think that they're going to need that mentorship? How candid can I be? Very candid. Okay. I, I think video and YouTube is detrimental to the beginning of one's career. I think it's fabulous for somebody that knows basics and understands the rules and regulations. And I'm glad we took haircutting because that's all I do. <laughs> right, but, well. but, but the principles were applicable to hair color, to hairstyle, and to upstyles, to anything and in any craft, actually. There, you know, as much as we're in a creative industry, I think there's a there's a, a misnomer that there's kind of no right and wrongs. So let's not use those words, right and wrong. Let's use the words, what works and what doesn't work. Because realistically, without foundation and without understanding of, of quote, you say rules and regulations, people don't like those words. Okay, so let's use it, the word guidelines. <laughs> There's certain guidelines that have to be applicable. There are pillars that, that are a must to understand and learn prior to doing anything. You know, years ago, I, I took saxophone lessons and the guy, I, he was my client and he was one of the most famous studio saxophonists in New York City. This is when I lived in New Jersey. Bob Magnuson, the guy is unbelievable. Everybody wanted him. He's on so many records, session styles. And so he was like an expert, right? And I knew nothing about saxophone except I liked the way it sounded. So he sits me down and I'm ready to start wanting to play like David Sanborn. Teach me how to well this thing. And he starts off with, Mary had a little lamb. <laughs> F-E-D-B-A. And I said, no, Bob. I, I, I mean, I want to play something like a cool song. Like uh, He said, dude, you're five years away from that. So let's teach you how this... He called it the axe, the saxophone. Let's teach yeah. you what this can do and can't do. And after about three years of Mary Had a Little Lamb, the way I want you to play it by the book, then we'll teach you how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb with a little bit of sizzle. And then I'm gonna let you play Mary Had a Little Lamb for me, however the heck you want to, as long as it's F-E-D-B-A-G yeah. and click. That helped me become a way better teacher, instructor, mentor, because I was on the other side of it. Right. Right. So again, if I'm watching some, if let's take my daughter, Sydney, for instance, she's doing hair, like, well, she's been doing hair for many years, but she came out of beauty school and she's fearless and she's willing to try anything and do anything. And every now and then we just got to back up and say, 
you can't do that without doing this first right. or else that's never that might work seven out of ten times but it's not going to work every time and i think right. that's what's happened with i don't think anything's wrong with that kind of education but i think it's dangerous for people to quote be self-taught there are mentors, there are experts out there. And I still think, I think what's going to change more than anything, Sheila, and all the people listening on this podcast, I think what needs to change the most is our interview, is how we interview somebody coming on to our team. Because at the end of the day, it is going to be independence, there's going to be sessions, there's going to be all that that you were talking about. We're all going to pivot. But there's still going to be people that want to work for a commission based team based uh organization based salon that you know there's there's 18 year old kids in the military the military's not doing things differently but it's a certain personality that's joining that military always has been but even more now they say oh the millennials this millennials that i love the millennials i i sit and i learn so much from them i'm not sure i want a staff full of millennials but i do want enough of them to keep me fresh keep my mind open and, and stay the only way i can move forward is by listening the you know the education and the, the the intelligence is on our staff if we just don't play like here's the way we've always done it you know we walked uphill in the snow with no shoes on you got to listen to me we're not doing it your way stay open and listen to the youth i think they're going to help us pivot not only our salons but the industry in general to a way that's going to allow us to have inside the the channels of how to have a better commission-based salon moving forward. I totally agree. You know, I think one of the um, challenges of people coming into the industry, and I think this has been happening for a long time, because you know, there's always been that rhetoric, people come out of school and say, I didn't learn very much. And a salon owners saying, um, I don't think they learned that in school. Well, school only gives them the right to learn you know it's sort of like doctors uh lawyers all of them they go to school to get a license to practice and that's where we we lose it sometimes with people coming into the salons and they don't understand that they are there to practice what they learned in school and i don't know why we've gotten away from that terminology within our industry and everybody comes out of school ready to be the star and it doesn't happen in any industry. So uh, I'm pretty excited right now talking to so many of the students that are in schools that they, they are seeing this as a career path of coming out. And I think we just need to make it more aware to everybody, the journey of how you become famous or successful or the star or platform artist uh, on that career path. because. I mean, think of all the opportunities that's been given to you and me, travel and uh, friendship around the world. I mean, just we could go on and on and on, right? Absolutely. And, and I don't think they're ever going to go away. I think, you know, you're always going to have your upper 5% of the industry that, you know, are the leaders. But, you know, with students coming out now, I think the conversations are dramatically different. You know, right now we need, we could hire 10 people today. Actually, last Thursday, we had 10 interviews. One showed up. So that's a new day because I, I used to have 20 applications on my desk and I would cherry pick the best one. 
and sort of let them know how fortunate they were to get slotted. And now I'm like, hey, man, you know anybody that wants a job? <laughs> so it is, <laughs> it is swung from one side completely to the other. And, you know, we didn't used to have to go into the beauty schools. They would come to us. Now we're in the beauty schools left. There. Everything's, everything's different and not necessarily better or worse. It's, it's shifted. And we got to make the shift with it. You know, I keep saying this thing. I taught a seminar yesterday in Atlanta. And one of my first slides were, easy is over. I think for an industry, we really were quite fortunate. We had like a 20-year run from, you know, 80 to 2000 to where, you know, people were coming in, spending a lot of money. We had two or three assistants working. And at the end of the day, I don't want to say it was easy. It was hard work, but it was easy to do business. Yes. It was hard work but it was easier to do business. It's harder to do business now. But at the end of the day, what I know is a lot of my competitors aren't gonna be willing to do the work. So for a fact, I can be outspent by my competition. There's owners that have more money than I do. For a fact, I, I, I can be outsmarted. There's a lot of salon owners that are smarter than me. But the third fact is there's not one that's gonna outwork me. And I think I'm working harder now. I mean, I know I'm working harder now than I did 20 years ago. You know, but it's so, it's, it's, it's different. It's accelerating though, don't you think? The challenges? Uh, yeah, I wish maybe it was a little less accelerating. What'd you say, exil exhilarating? Yeah. yeah. Either way, I wish it wasn't so accelerated or as exhilarated as it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what? It does keep us sharp, right? And it does keep us, you know, sort of uh, how can it, not being lazy. Let's put it that way. We have to be sharp every single day and come ready for anything that comes our way, which a lot is coming our way these days, uh, unexpectedly, right? Uh, so let's talk about the consumer. Uh, I know that for years, consumers were pretty loyal for hairdressers, even if they had bad haircuts, they like the person. I'm seeing the trend of the consumer. There's always going to be that certain percentage, maybe 10% of the guests that come into salons or any business just come because they're loyal. That's what they've always done. But I'm really seeing a trend now where people are, or they know that they didn't have a good haircut and they want something better. Uh, I mean, the consumer is getting a little bit more, um, how can I say, demanding of, they don't mind the price, but they do want the best for their hair and they want to look the best. Are you seeing the same thing? Gee, I, I think it's always been there. I think it's more prevalent now. I, I think the key word, and we use it all the time in our company, it isn't price, right? It's value. Yes. Uh, we give them value. You know, I worked for a guy, Joe Lupa, the, the guy who trained me, he said, yeah, if you try, at the time it was $12.50 for like a shag. <laughs> it was a shampoo haircut with mint julep shampoo. It was a haircut <laughs> and a blow dry. And it was $12.50. He said, look, we can get 15 as long as you give him an $18 haircut. We can right. get 21 as long as you give him a $25 haircut. So it's really about value. And, you know, I think the consultation there's a difference between, there's two types of hairdressers that I've always been around. And it's either an order taker or an expert. And the experts are the ones that get the $100 for a haircut and $75 for haircuts. And the order takers can never sort of get out of that $25 range because the value's not there. 
Right. So a consumer knows the difference between an order taker and an expert. And I have this phrase where I never want our clients to beat us to the future. Sometimes they're asking us questions they know the answers to now because of social media and whatnot. So if we're not, if we're not getting better, you talk about practicing, you know, 50 years now, I'm still practicing, right? To get better and better. So what's the consultation sound like, look like? What, 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 what are you bringing value to the table as a hairdresser that lets that client know I'm no longer in the market for a hairdresser. I found my hairdresser. So what I ask my hairdressers to do is take your client out of the market for looking for a new hairdresser because we put them in the market. If we don't do our job, we leave them in the market for looking for a new hairdresser. So, so how long does it take you to do a consultation? Um, me now, you know, in my career now, I really don't have yeah. that many new clients. But, you know, I, I think you got to start off with the magic question. Otherwise, it can go on for too long. I think, you know, yeah. time is money, right? I think you got to have that consultation. And I think it's a, a matter of, of controlling the direction of that or else it can go far too long. And you can spend a 30 th- a day could be consultations if you're not careful. Right? That's right. So the very first question, in my opinion, to cut to the chase and get the fat out of the way is if I ask a client what they want, that's opening up Pandora's box. So the first question I ask the client is what don't you want? They can answer that question a heck of a lot easier. And that sort of gets you right into the meat of what you can now do. Right. And especially the first time. You know, I'm known for like cutting people's hair off. The only reason why I'm known for that is because I don't like blow drying. And if I cut it short, there's less to blow dry. <laughs> so they say, only go to Frank if you want short hair. But at the end of the day, the first visit is about trust. It's not about hair. It's build the trust with that client and listen to what they don't want. You deliver what they don't want. And you talk about the next visit of what you think you might kind of move them into. Then the third visit's the most crucial. I think that's where hairdressers lose a client is on the third visit because now they get way more comfortable. They take that client for granted and they deliver at a less level than they did on a first visit. Right. Because we, that third vi- that if you get them back a third time, you're in good shape. But that right. third visit, that third visits make or break. So again, you know, I try to have. As, a, as an instructor in seminars, I try to give people nuggets that they can hang on to. And the one is never take any client for granted. We right. tend to, after a year or two, they're my client, they love me. And if we start looking at what we deliver now versus the f- first time we're with them, we're on. Consultation solid. We're showing them the back of their haircut. We're recommending retail product because we're trying to get them to be our client. But that mentality shifts once we think, I got them. They're mine now. They're never yours. And to your point, clients want more value today. Every time we raise their price, they're saying, wait a second, I'm not getting nothing different. Why am I paying more? Well, you can give them more. You can give them more attention. You can give them more of yourself. They're buying into you. So your client don't really want to say, I had my hair done by Sheila. Right? They want to say, I was with Sheila when I had my hair done. They yes. want to be with you. They want to belong. So, you know, I, I think that's the key is if you're going to own the client, which is no such thing really, but if you're going to take them out of the market for looking for a new hairdresser, 
you better be on your A game day in and day out. Because if you don't do it for them, somebody else will. Okay, so let's talk about the haircut. Um, I know that you're a cutter, I'm a cutter. Uh, that's how we got into this. But uh, I also color hair, but I still, my heart is in the haircut because that is absolutely the foundation of everything you do on that client. Agreed? Absolutely. I, well, for me, for sure, because that's, no, that's all I, I do. And I, I say that's I, all I do. That's all I've ever done. The most beautiful hair color that I see on the streets are on a really nice haircut. I don't really notice the hair color if it's on a messy, you know, just unconstructed or a bad haircut. So, you know, Intercore Fura has um, kickstarted the uh, National Haircutting Month in October. And so we've, we've got a lot of interest from schools, from everybody. And hopefully we're going to have that trickle down to all the consumers so that we as an industry will have our own month. We have National Hair Loss Month. We have National um, Beauty Month. We have all of that. But I think we need to focus on the craft of the haircut because it is the foundation of our industry. And that is the only thing that cannot be sold through Amazon. Well, Jill, first of all, congratulations to you for getting that through to where October will be haircutting month. I, I know it's not easy to get that stuff done. And I know you've certainly uh, uh, negotiated with the right people. I don't know if we're able to say his name, but uh, you, you got the right guy in place for Intercraft Florida to be able to bring haircutting back to where it needs to be. But it's never going to come back to where it needs to be. It might be as a where we can teach it. But until hairdressers start cutting their hair, the consumer will not. We, we, have, we have taken that portion. You know, we worry about blow-dry bars taking our blow-dry business, nail salons taking our nail business, waxing places taking our waxing business. It's the fragmentation of the beauty business, right? We, right. Literally, we literally have taken haircutting out of our salons ourselves. Right. If I walk in most salons, gir girls either got hair down to here or they had extensions down to here. Nobody's wearing haircuts. And until we as an industry wear them, why would a client say, why, why would a client do it? They don't see it as, you know, before it used to be where, you know, if you go into a Giorgio Armani boutique, they're wearing the, the latest collection of Giorgio Armani. And you say, great jacket, where are they? They're over there. And, and they're kind of promoting their stuff. We don't do that. The only thing we're promoting right now is extensions, put hair in. Nobody's exactly. taking hair off. So I think we got a long road ahead of us, but I think it's awesome that you're bringing light to it. But I think what's happened with, with long hair is people have this disbelief that all I have to do is trim it, that I just want my hair longer. And long hair needs shape. It needs shape cut into it. You know, uh, is it to be worn forward? Is it to be worn back? Uh, does the face shape need height? You got face shape, you got one eye lower than the other. How do we raise that and level it off? All this has to come in that consultation to where clients will, even with long hair, th there needs to be shape cut into it. And they need to know why their shape's different than just getting it trimmed because it's almost like a single process. Any salon that's doing single process hair color is it's just telling the client they don't need them. Well, right. if we're only doing a trim on long hair to keep it healthy, we're telling the we're telling the hairdresser we don't need them. 
They actually think their friends can do that. They're taking Are a half inch off of them. Yeah. Are their husband. And, and then, then I see hairdressers taking one big section and trimming bottoms in salons I travel around to. And I'm thinking, you're not making a ceremony out of it. Why would there be value that you just charge them 50 bucks for a five minute haircut? Right. Why didn't you talk about their fringe? Why didn't you tell them we're going to make it a little softer because X, Y, Z, or we're going to pull it back a little deeper because we're going to show off your cheekbones or, you know, maybe your nose is not the center of your face is not where we want to draw attention. So why don't we draw it back into like a three quarter, slightly asymmetry shape around the front of long hair. If we don't tell them why that haircut's being designed for their face shape, for their lifestyle, for their hair's texture or its capabilities, then we're not taking them out of the market and saying, I found my hairdresser. I totally agree. The, the conversation of how to talk a haircut. Um, I remember one of the classes years ago that you came in and did at the salon. And we, we talked about speaking the language of haircutting. And it was just exactly what you said. You got to talk about, you know, tell them where their, their growth lines are, or their forward, their uh, forehead is too far back and they bring a little fringe down and, you know, bangs always don't have to look the same. You can have them shorter. But I remember that whole weekend, that's all we talked about. And I think my team learned more that weekend without probably picking up uh, but one time a pair of scissors, but they walked away with more information and they became better cutters because they knew how to speak the language. And I do think that that's the missing component right now is most of the people coming into the industry don't know how to speak the language. Yeah, they, they talk about the end result. They don't talk about the process. Right. I, I, feel, I feel like if you're going to be an expert versus an order taker, if you're truly going to be an expert, that client should be wowed before you take the first snip. Yeah, they should relax. They, they should know by then, wait a second, this is new. I've never had this before. This guy's in a whole different league or this woman's in a whole different league than I've ever been. I'm fortunate here. I don't care if it's more money. Right. You know, that the, the money then becomes taken out of it. And then you got to back it up. And unless you're trained properly, you can't back it up. So now the words are great, but you better be able to back it up with technique and performance. I know some, we call them dancers. They can do the talk, but the finished result isn't there, right? So they right. become popular by personality, if you would. But you mix proper language and proper personality, or at least having people soft skills at the chair. And then you mix that with good technique and a great finished product. I, I would invite them to go somewhere else, just so they come back to me and never think of leaving again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You know, sometimes you don't know what you have until you don't have it. Well, you know, one of the misconceptions, I think, uh, to our general public is long hair is sexy. Long hair is uh, makes them look younger. One of my uh, team members, matter of fact, my salon director, she had long hair. She's beautiful anyway, you know, tall, thin, just gorgeous. And we cut her hair off real short. And one week she had every guy that walked in our salon and every female too said, oh my gosh, what have you done? You are stunning. And that word resonated the whole week through so many people. And it was just because she cut her hair. She didn't do anything else, but she cut her hair and it showed her face off. And 
I mean, she said, you know, I would have never thought that men would love short hair, but she said, I can't tell you every man that's walked in this salon and every woman has said, oh my gosh, you are gorgeous looking today. So I think that um, the misconception of long hair makes you look better is somewhere has been put out there in the, in the magazines or the movies or all of that, but it's really not true. Short hair can be as stunning and um, sexy as anything. And I think we need to get that, that out there. Although I think that a lot of people, you have to cut a really good haircut too, because it shows up on shorter hair. Don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There's less forgiveness in it, but yes. you know, it seems to be whether we like it or not, celebrities control kind of the direction of hair anyway. And that's our fault. We're, 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 we're not, Here's what I really think, and I, it's going to sound a little derogatory, and I'm thinking, should I say it or not? Should I say it or not? Now, that's been the story of my life. Every time I think, should I say it or not? I shouldn't, but I do anyway. Hey, but you so. know what, friends? That's called, that's called raw and honest, so let's hear it. Uh, okay, right? Uh, that, at the end of the day, it's our fault for not taking control of the client. It really is. I mean, we, and now it's not going to be, it's not going to be easy to get back, but with celebrities have dictated, I mean, Dorothy Hamill, Farrah Fawcett, uh, friends, uh, you know, I started calling that haircut the enemy instead of the friends because it was like every, and, and because of cele it looked, it looked great on her, but it wasn't for everybody. Right. But it was, it's see, if we take the path of least resistance and I say we as headdresses. It's almost easier when a client says, hey, I want the friend's haircut. Like this is back then. I don't mean now. But yeah. it may, okay, now I don't have to do a consultation. That's, I know what you, I know how to do that haircut. It was easier, but it wasn't best. And, and I think, and here's where I say I shouldn't say it, but I will. I think headdresses sometimes take the easy route to the, to the client's service. And by that, I mean, oh, if I don't have to do a consultation, that's one less thing I have to do. And I've seen this in our own company. So it's not like I'm, I'm pointing fingers at anybody. I lose my, that time, that first five minutes with the client, number one is a decompression time. They're coming in from the outside. They either left their office, left their house, got stuck in traffic, uh, left a babysitter, whatever. That first five minutes just allows them to breathe and have that conversation you can own that client and i don't mean that derogatory owning but you can actually be their hairdresser and let them know you're the expert with that first five minutes right there that's the most crucial time and if they say hey same thing as last time or are we going to change anything today it, our verbiage is almost giving them the answer like you love it don't you when we show them at the end well if they don't like their fringe and we just told them you love it right they can't tell us they don't like their fringe. We shut that down instead of being open to, hey, is there anything about this you might want to change? Well, I kind of maybe want these a little short, no problem. And then all of a sudden it's like you have this symbiotic relationship. Right. I, I, I think we're a little too quick to try to steer the client in the direction we want them in. And it shuts the conversation down for us to have an open relationship to where we can really make them love their hair instead of just like it. Oh, I totally agree. And um, you know what? I think we need to have another conversation 
about a little bit more detail with this. We should do a series on this. And uh, I think we should set that up. I think this is, um, this information is so needed now for the students and the for some of the hairdressers who's been in the industry and a little like um, burn out. You know, they need to be rejuvenated with what they know is right and then how to turn it around. So uh, how about if we set up another time and go a little bit more in depth with all of this? Sheila, if we can bring value to make this, this industry better in any shape or form, you can always count me in. I know it. And I, I wanna thank you so much. And I also want to reiterate to everybody that's listening that you, know, you as a salon owner for many years, and also you were the president of Intercourse Europe America Canada, and you're the first vice president of Mondial Global, which is our um, mother company, right? <clears throat> and um, you've done so much. You've, you're an educator, you're, um, you're a great father, a great husband and a great friend to me and to the industry. So Frank, I wanna thank you so much and we'll set another time up and uh, we'll get a little bit, maybe we'll bring in a few more people and, and try to find out the solutions to what we can do to help the industry be even better. That sounds great, Sheila. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for the kind words. Thank you, love you, bye-bye. All right, love you too, bye. Thank you for joining us for the ICA Podcast 9 podcast. Be sure to tune in next week for more industry insight and information. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast too and share it with your friends in the industry. Our only goal is to bring people together and share information with those that need it. Intercoiffure America Canada is proud to be the voice for salon owners. For more information about us, visit intercoiffure.com. That's intercoiffure.com.